Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast series proudly brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Dr. Imran Ahmed, a visiting research fellow here at the Institute. In this South Asia Outlook episode, we reflect on the year that has passed and consider some of the most pressing issues currently facing the people and states in South Asia. For many countries, 2022 marked a year of turbulence and prolonged political, economic, and environmental crisis. As countries sought to emerge from the social and economic fallout of the pandemic, the invasion of Ukraine ex exacerbated pre-existing vulnerabilities. We're fortunate today to have Associate Professor Dr. Iqbal Singh Sevilla, our director here at ISAS, to take us through some of the challenges and opportunities facing the region. Hi, Iqbal. A very warm welcome. Hi, Imran. It's always a pleasure to join you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, let me begin with my first question. Uh, the ouster of former Prime Minister Imran Khan, mass demonstrations against the Awami League in Bangladesh, the resignation of Sri Lanka's former president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, are all examples which suggests that 2022 was a year of seismic shifts in the political landscape across the region. Is there a common thread in the political upheaval taking shape in these countries? Mm. Now, it's, it's hard to generalize um, about the various South Asian countries per se, because the socioeconomic context and historical trajectory in each case, is, is somewhat different. Yes. Um, and in many cases, if, if you look at the case of Pakistan, Sri Lanka in, in particular, you find that there are there are longer historical contexts that have actually led up to these issues, but also individual political dynamics within these states as well that are playing out in, in very interesting ways. And I, I'll address that in a second, but you do raise a good point about is there a common thread? And one of the things that has accentuated these issues in, in many of the countries that, that you just mentioned is the issue of soaring inflation and the government's lack of or the government's perceived lack of ability to handle the issue of inflation. Now, if we, if we break it down, and you mentioned um, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and um, Bangladesh. Now, if we, if we start with, with the case of Pakistan itself and, and we look at what the issue there uh, well, what's caused the, the, as you mentioned, the, the um, political upheaval and somewhat uncertainty in, in Pakistan itself is that Pakistan has been suffering from a severe foreign debt and current affairs, current uh, account deficit for, for some time now. So it's, it's not something new that, that popped up. And linked to this is the issue of the slow growth in the export sector in, in Pakistan. Now, successive governments in Pakistan were unable to deal with this, these issues, including the Imran Khan government as well. And the problems were accentuated by political contestation that, that had been playing out over the past few years. But the inflation, the issue of inflation, and, and this, this issue um, is, is, is um, linked to, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine as well, and I suspect we may be speaking about that um, today yes. as well. Um, has accentuated these issues. Now, if, to give you an to give you a, an example, um, in December 2022, inflation um, spiraled in, in Pakistan. And if you look at food inflation in particular, um, 
the rural areas in Pakistan were, were hit far harder than um, urban centers. And this is a significant factor. If you, if you take into account that there was 38% um, food inflation in rural Pakistan itself. Now, staples like wheat have become expensive. Now, all of this has led to issues of concern. Fuel prices are an issue of concern in Pakistan as well. And all of this led to opposition against the government that preceded Imran Khan um, has led to contestation and opposition against Imran Khan as well. But today, um, the Shabazz Sharif government um, is unable to uh, unable to handle this issue as well. So once again, it's at these issues are at the front and center of political contestations in, in Pakistan, and it remains to be seen how this will be dealt with. Now, if we turn to the case of Sri Lanka, um, and at ISS, we've done a fair amount on, on this issue as well. Again, there are longer-term macro issues that are involved. Um, Sri Lanka has had a long-held issue with the foreign debt, um, and uh, there have long been calls for the further uh, diversification of the economy, etc. But in the past few years, there were issues related to specific government decisions that accentuated these issues. Again, now, if I just give you two, two, um, two examples here, I would refer to the fact that the Gotabaya Rajapaksa government had slashed value-added tax from something about 15% to approximately 8%. And they also increased income tax waivers, which essentially led to um, a decrease in 33% of the tax-paying population. Now, added to this issues of subsidies, um, this impacted revenue generation in Sri Lanka. However, all of this was occurring in a context of a country emerging out of COVID, a country which was struggling with um, to revive its tourism economy as well. And then you had the issue of massive inflation um, as a result of, partly as a result of, um, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine as well, where fuel, fuel prices uh, massively increased. And this actually resulted in um, the um, scenes that we saw people queuing up to buy fuel, people um, queuing up to buy food, but also the scenes we saw of the protest against the government as well, and which subsequently led to um, Gotabaya Rajapaksa resigning and actually um, leaving the country as well. Now, the case of Bangladesh is, is interesting, and this is, I think, the, the, um, the, more, the most recent of, of of all this, um, I mean, most recent in terms of witnessing um, open street demonstrations. And, and it's interesting because up till fairly recently, Bangladesh was seen as being on the um, ascendancy in, in terms of its um, socioeconomic indexes, but also human uh, development indexes as well. However, in December, we witnessed tens of thousands of um, people coming out on the streets to protest against the government. Now, it should, be, it should also be, be emphasized here that uh, many of those who were protesting, not all, but many of them who were protesting were supporters of the op main opposition party, the Bangladesh Nationalist Party or the BNP. Yes. The BNP had called for a rally to protest against the, uh, and you mentioned this in your question, Sheikh Hasina's uh, Awami League party. Now, the BNP census um, an opportunity to revive its, uh, its political fortunes um, within this context. But what is this context that has led to, to people on the streets? Now, Sheikh Hasina and the Awami League have been in power since 2009. And she has been accused by her political detractors and, and the opposition of 
essentially having suppressed political opposition and dissenters. So, you know, you, you, you've not witnessed uh, protests on the streets, etc. Um, and it, essentially, the government has faced little opposition since coming to, since being re-elected in 2018. But I, I also want to emphasize, apart from the fact that she has concentrated power in, in various ways in, in the hands of the party, etc., but she has also, and unlike the case of, of, of Pakistan, she has also built her legitimacy on a discourse of development. And she has been successful to, to a large extent. If you look at the figures from Bangladesh, you'll find that um, there's been a drop of, uh, in the poverty rate of somewhere in the range of 29% um, since 1991. And Bangladesh was poised to, to exit from the least developed country status by 2026. And a lot of this was a lot of this success was based on uh, development of infrastructure, but also the thriving export sector, which was which was primarily um, made up of the export of ready-made government government products um, or textile products. Now, what happened then? What happened is that we we've been witnessing for the past few the last few months of 2022. We're witnessing skyrocketing prices of essential items, fuel, fuel price hikes, and power cuts. And this is primarily because of high energy prices triggered by the Russia-Ukraine war. This significantly reduced Bangladesh's ability to sell cheap government products. And so therefore, um, the basically demand for these products um, decreased demand for Western countries decreased. At the same time, it led to a devaluation of the local currency against the US dollar. This then resulted in the country's reserves actually having dropped. And I think the last figure I came across was somewhere in the range of the reserves being in the range of 26.3 billion, which means that there's, there's sufficient only to basically cover about three months worth of imports. Now, the impact on this, on the everyday person, has been an increase in fuel prices because while in the case of just comparing with the case of Pakistan that you mentioned to begin with, the whereas in Pakistan there was a there was a concerted effort by the government to keep fuel prices down, which actually led to issues with the IMF loan. In the case of Bangladesh, there was an attempt to raise there was there was they, they raised uh, fuel prices by forty to fifty percent. Now this then has a domino effect, so other essential products were also affected. So what you have is um, the price of oil, rice, vegetables, all of this rising by 20 to 30%. And um, public transportation as well, the prices of that um, increased by about 20 to 30% as well. And this has led to a questioning of the developmental discourse that has legitimized the government in Bangladesh. Now, um, I, I know I rambled on with the individual countries um, in a fair amount, but the one trend that I think has triggered specific issues and specific political contestations in these three countries has been the issue of inflation. Thank you so much for that. So what I took from that was uh, that the economy, the, the state of foreign reserves uh, and the cost of living being a common uh, factor in, in both the upheaval, but also in garnering legitimacy um, uh, in, in, the country, in the countries in question. I wanted to move to the second question, uh, and you touched on this a little bit. The invasion of Ukraine dampened <coughs> the post-COVID economic recovery of South Asian states. 
uh, as the war introduced new shocks, new supply chain problems produced greater food and fuel insecurity that you touched on, uh, inflation, and um, added to the political upheaval. Um, how have South Asian states responded to these challenges and the changing geopolitical environment? I like the fact that you ask how have South Asian states rather than how has South Asia responded because there, <laughs> there, there is no, as you, you, you know, there, there is no South Asian response to this, this crisis. If we, yes. if we look at the, uh, if we just look at the UN General Assembly vote or number of votes have happened on this issue, um, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka have abstained from uh, votes that have um, condemned Russia for the invasion. Whereas Afghanistan, Nepal, Bhutan, and the Maldives have voted in favor of the resolution um, condemning Russia for the invasion. So there, there is a, there's, a, there's a split within uh, South Asia on this issue as well. Um, and I should also highlight that right, when we talk about Afghanistan, it's important to note that it's not the current um, Taliban government that's voting in the United Nations, right? The previous um, authorities. Administrations, yes. Precisely. Um, but if we, if we, Perhaps we just focus on those who abstained from voting against <coughs> um, Russia in the United Nations um, Assembly votes. Um, namely, in the Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, we also find that they have different motivations and, and nuances in their statements on the issue as well. So while India abstains from the vote, India has, um, has always maintained that there should be peace and, and that they've you know, reiterated the need for for. for or the war to stop, etc. Pakistan, interestingly, um, has actually mentioned the issue of indivisible security principle, which um, which some people in um, some observers have, have said that it's it's uh, it seems to provide some form of legitimacy for for um, for, for Russia, etc. Now that's a that's a mood, that's a point of debate that we we can discuss further. However, the point I'm trying to make is that they they're not united even when they're abstaining. As well, because they have their own domestic compulsions, they have their own economic reasons, but they also have their own geopolitical calculations involved in how they respond to the state. Now, um, we've already noted that um, that many of these countries, uh, I mentioned uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, but the others as well, India, Nepal, Maldives, each one of them is affected by the rise in fuel prices, um, and this is a this is a um, this is a trigger effect on many other issues as well, because not only are fuel prices impacted, but the products that are produced using um, the fuel prices of those are affected as well. However, you also have supply chain issues related to food, um, fertilizer products, for instance. Now, um, in many South Asian countries, they and then many of them have uh, very uh, large rural uh, economies. Um, fertilizer prices have, have increased. And since many of these governments provide subsidies, the amount of subsidies that they have to provide increase as well. So the impact and the reactions have been, um, have been multi uh, faster in this way. I mentioned earlier the impact on the Bangladesh um, economy. Um, I also mentioned the, the fact that Pakistan is having a food inflation. Um, wheat, grain, the prices of these issues have, have increased tremendously. Um, in India itself, I, I didn't mention India in our earlier discussion, but inflation itself, um, while it's not um, in the range of um, what's going on in Pakistan and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, 
but calculations are that it could rise from 4.5% to 6.7%. While these are not terribly scary figures, but they give you a sense of, of the concerns in these countries as well. Yes. Now, how they've responded is um, interesting, and I'll focus on India here. India um, has been has made a concerted effort and been successful in securing increasing quantities of crude oil from Russia at discounted prices. This has been somewhat controversial, um, and it's been met with various uh, differing um, um, responses from the rest of the international community. However, India has been very clear that this is something that's important to maintain the economic development in India, but also to ensure that prices are affordable within India itself to control um, domestic prices and inflation issues here. Now, there are also two geopolitical reconfigurations that, that have been accentuated by Russia's invasion. Um, and the South Asian countries are also negotiating their role within this. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the liberal order or the rules-based order which was created at the end of the Second World War and is based around institutions like the United Nations, World Bank, and the IMF, and, and, and basically supported and um, facilitated economic globalization, that these forms of multilateralism uh, have been challenged today and have been threatened um, today. And the South Asian states will, looking ahead, will need to negotiate them, their own role, space, and geopolitical um, issues, stances within this new world. Um, this is one new world in which um, the chances of conflict will increase, but there will also be new opportunities um, for new groupings as well. And if, again, if I just refer back to the case of India, we find that India is actively exploring new opportunities in multilateral forums. So perhaps we should look for multilateral uh, institutions that were developed. The last point I'll say is that um, we also find a new discourse, I wouldn't say new discourse, but a, a, a resurgent discourse on the global South. Um, and we, we hear this echoing in, in various parts of South Asia, um, that essentially it's time for the global South to be able to, to assert its own geopolitical needs and not be dragged into wars um, and the impact of wars that uh, are occurring in Europe, et cetera. Thank you so much. That's uh, incredibly interesting, particularly uh, your comments about the Global South asserting um, um, uh, that position. Um, that's something perhaps we can talk about in another podcast. I think that'd be really interesting to probe. Um, I, my next question, uh, I, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper about India. Um, South Asia has also been the ground for rivalry between India and China, as both countries uh, are looking to influence, have to, um, uh, uh, place influence over the region. Uh, what are the sources of tension um, driving <laughs> the con conflict between these two um, significant powers? Uh, and do you see... Uh, and where do you see that kind of going um, as 2023 unfolds? Essentially, the main cause of this issue is an unsettled border, unsettled border between India and China. Um, this is a legacy of colonialism and colonial cartography. Um, but it also links on, I mean, not but also, it essentially links on to contemporary questions over territorial integrity 
and sovereignty. And these are not new issues. They flared up before in, in 60 years, uh, 60 years ago, we, uh, India and China had the 1962 war pretty much over this issue about boundary marking as well. But both sides did agree to, well, they didn't agree on the, on the precise areas of uh, the border. They agreed on a line of actual control. And this was institutionalized in 1993 by the Border Peace and Tranquility Agreement. And there have been various points at which there have been um, flashes and conflicts, but also diplomatic negotiations to maintain the, the, the LAC as a de facto um, border, if you may. Now, tensions sparked in 2012 when the Indian side accused the People's Liberation Army of China of preventing them from assessing specific areas that they had previously patrolled. This, uh, there were, there were I, I won't go into the history of it, but there were, there were some clashes, but there were also diplomatic engagements that settled the issue. And it flared up in a, in a dramatic way again in 2020, when China essentially changed the status quo in some strategically important sites in the Western sector of the um, LAC. And the concern in India was that China is trying to create a new normal, a uh, new de facto, um, somewhat akin to, to what, what uh, China was accused of doing in the South China Sea. But there was also another backdrop to this as well. China was also increasingly taking a greater interest in South Asia at this point of time. And it also had positioned itself in ways that were seen as being anti-India. Um, for instance, um, it opposed India's um, um, in, from India from being a part of the nuclear supplies group. Um, but it also was also developing um, links, infrastructure links, financial links with other South Asian states. Now, coming back to the, the, the specific issue we were talking about, the borders, both sides have over the years and decades been developing infrastructure and logistic links um, to, to the end of the, the line of actual control of the LAC. This includes roads, tunnels, even villages, etc. Um, and this has over the decades led to more chances of clashes. In 2020, um, we saw dramatic clashes at Galwan. Um, and there were, we're familiar with the images of, of those issues and um, there, were, there were casualties on both sides as well. On 9 December 2022, there were further clashes between the Indian um, soldiers and, and Chinese soldiers at the Taiwan sector in uh, Arunachal Pradesh. Now, since then, we have seen rhetoric on both sides, be uh, measured rhetoric on both sides. And we are, but we are witnessing, and you, you asked about looking ahead, we are witnessing concerted efforts to secure their respective strategic strengths along on their sides of, or their claim sides of the, the LAC. India, for instance, is completing a, a tunnel, the Sela Tunnel, which is a tunnel that would essentially, um, uh, an all-weather tunnel that would allow all-weather access to Indian troops from Guwahati in uh, Assam to Tawang in Arunachal Pradesh. And it will actually be um, uh, arguably the longest bi-lane tunnel. Um, India is also apparently a, um, acquiring new sort of targeted missiles that could be deployed at the LAC. Um, at the same time, I do anticipate that we will see more diplomatic channels kicking in um, to ensure that these issues don't, uh, the ratcheting doesn't go up too high.
so building from my uh, previous question, uh, how does this ongoing rivalry between India and China impact the smaller states in the region? Is it difficult for them to stay neutral? There's a famous saying in, in Nepal, attributed to one of Nepal's uh, very early kings. And he described Nepal as a yam between two boulders, um, India and, and China. And um, interestingly, the current prime minister of uh, Nepal, Prachanda, um, he had, he's reported to have at some stage paraphrased the king some time ago and said that Nepal is like a dynamite between two rocks. Um, so I, I find this, um, this adage quite, um, quite interesting. Now, um, it, it sums up the, the, the question that you are, you are essentially asking about, can they be neutral and um, how much of pressure on them and how do they, how do they act? Now, let's, let's, um, let's be clear about this. There are, India and China have, um, have tried to assert influence, develop friendships um, and partnerships, both through inducements and subtle and, and, and also sometimes not so subtle forms of pressure as well. Um, both countries um, have, have sought to develop these links. And, and let's, let's maybe use two examples to show this, the examples of Sri Lanka and Nepal. In, in the case of Sri Lanka, the, the current um, president of Sri Lanka, Ranil Vikramasinghe, uh, he's seen by many as wearing towards India, but the previous Rajapaksa family as a whole was seen to be um, closer to, to China. So we do see drifts within the countries as well. And these choices that the countries make, be Sri Lanka, Nepal, um, Maldives, etc., must be understood within the scope where we must also allow agency to these small states as well. They, they exercise their own choices um, within calculated economic, strategic, and geopolitical choices as well. So I'm not, I'm not saying they just, they, they, they have, uh, they don't face inducements and, and pressure, but there, there is a level of autonomy um, in their decision-making as well, which we shouldn't just uh, strike aside. Yeah, no. can, I, can I just interrupt you for yeah. one second? Can I ask you what sort of um, incentives or inducements uh, are you um, referring to? Well, on one hand, there is infrastructural support. So China, for instance, with BRI, provides infrastructural uh, money for infrastructural projects. Now, this is this has become a controversial question in itself. That in some cases, um, uh, people have accused uh, this of developing a, a debt trap in itself. But um, what we need to understand is when countries take um, China's money, one of the reasons why countries are willing to take Chinese money for infrastructure projects is that they are. It's much easier to get this money than it is to get. IMF or World Bank funding as well. The less strings attached, um, the less bureaucratic hurdles, the less questions, etc. So that that's a that in a nutshell is uh, one of the inducements that, that you will get. In terms of pressure, um, you actually have blockades as well. So India um, famously or infamously has blockaded um, Nepal on on a few occasions, and that's led to um, um, concern in, in Nepal itself and and influence domestic politics in itself. Um, and if we come back to the issue of Sri Lanka, right? Um, there, there's been a tussle again in, in within India and China over having some form of um, um, influence over infrastructure development, but also economic links as well. India was very keen on having a deal to construct 
a, the East container terminal at the Colombo port. And this was important for India because much of the trade that went through the Colombo port was from, um, was basically related to transshipment trade to India as well. So it provides India a strategic position there. However, the Chinese themselves were interested in having a, a say in the Colombo port and they actually uh, operate the Colombo International Container Terminal. So that's, that's just one example to show how these, these things play out between these two countries. We switch to, to Nepal because I think this is the question that um, that's sort of uh, some people are looking at, given that we've had a government change in Nepal in the last um, the very recent elections. Um, the new government that's come into power, uh, led by Prime Minister Prajanda, it's perceived that it was shift from the previous government's pro-India policy to a pro-China policy. And to, if I was to address the question you just raised about inducements, it's, it's sort of interesting to see that just um, very shortly after um, the new prime minister assumed, assumed uh, his position, the Chinese ambassador met him and announced that China was lifting the suspension of business and, and suspension of business and supply of goods from two key checkpoints and that had been imposed, um, restrictions that had been imposed during COVID. So the timing is, is very interesting in, in this way as well. Um, but I should, I, I'll just end by, by also highlighting, right, that if you look at these countries, right, there's sometimes they're not just um, stuck between India, uh, I, I would say that they're not just stuck between two, they're not just a yam stuck between two boulders. Increasingly, yes. they, some of them are fearing that they are yam stuck between three boulders. Um, because of the China-US tensions that are playing out in the region as well. And um, this sort of played out um, during the previous Nepalese government, where um, the government ratified a 500 million US-sponsored millennium challenge that the Chinese are very concerned about. And the, the previous government was seen by China as being too pro-India and too pro-US as well. Thank, thank you so much. I wanted to ask, um question about the domestic politics in India. Um, as India moves towards the national uh, elections in 2024, uh, what are the key issues of political contestation and concern for voters? Uh, I think you sort of touched on, on a few things related to economy and uh, foreign policy. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate um, your thoughts on this. Certainly. 2023, um, will be a year of um, some very important state elections in, in India. Um, it, it also, these, these are, while they're state elections, they may set the tone for the national elections in 2024. Um, some people are going to be looking at these state elections that will happen in India as, uh, as, as semifinals for, for, for the 2024 national elections. I, 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 would, I wouldn't necessarily describe them as as uh, semi-finals because their states have their own dynamics and people vote often for, for very local state issues. However, there will be some issues that will arise in these elections that will set the tone for the national elections of 2024 or may provide some indications for the way the political contestation will play out. I, I should also add 2024 is also going to be an important year for elections for South Asia, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Maldives will also be facing elections um, in, in that year as well, yes. uh, in this year as well. Now, there, there are a number of, um, and I, I won't go into all of the elections, but I'll, I'll answer your question. I'll probably speak about a few of the elections that we can expect in India. Um, 
there will be elections in a few states of the northeast of India. So Meghalaya, Tripura, Nagaland um, will, be, will be having elections um, in a few months' time. Now, these are interesting because the ruling Bharatiya Janta Party or the BJP has gained a foothold or gained a foothold in the last elections in the Northeast. Um, uh, and the question is whether it will be able to cement its uh, position this time around. And it's an interesting question because the, the Northeast um, has um, very interesting local dynamics to it, but also community dynamics to it. These are areas in which you have sizable Christian communities as well. So it'd be interesting to see how the BJP stands on issues such as conversion, uh, Hindutva, et cetera, play out in these areas. In the last series of elections in the Northeast, um, the BJP was often able to establish its position by winning over rebels from other parties or developing strategic alliances. This time around, we are witnessing rebellions within the BJP um, in the Northeast as well. So it's, it's interesting to see if the BJP's, uh, will be able, the BJP will be able to hold on to its gains and how your position itself in these areas as well. Another very important election will be the election um, that will take place in Karnataka. This is the BJP's sole stronghold in the south of India. The BJP is currently in power um, and it's currently in power, but there is discontent within the party ranks there as well. <coughs> what, what I've been looking out in, in Karnataka, what I've been looking out for in Karnataka is how the BJP manages various caste equations, but also the extent to which the rhetoric will, will play out around religious issues. Now, we witnessed um, in 2022 um, communal rhetoric uh, playing out in the political realm and on the streets as well. So I'll keep an eye on how these things play out because Karnataka, as I mentioned earlier, is the only state the BJP has been able to win in the south. And it's, it's, it's important for the BJP to retain this, uh, this state. So I'll, I'll keep my eye on that as well. Another, yeah, state, another yeah. state in the south, and I'll quickly wrap up on this issue here. Yes. Another state in the south is the Telangana, uh, state of Telangana, one of the young, the youngest state in India. And here you have a straight out battle between um, the, or, or rather the BJP has positioned itself as battling the, the local party, the Telangana Rashtra Samiti, which has been credited with, with the creation of the state and has actually been in power um, since the state was formed two elections um, ago. What is interesting is that this party, which is, as I mentioned, the name is the name was Telangana Rashtra Samiti, has actually very recently changed its name to the Bharat Rashtra Samiti. And as the name implies, the switch in name implies, the party is actually positioning itself to play a leadership role in a national coalition against the BJP um, in the 2024 elections. So in that sense, the Telangana election, it's, it's um, May, may reflect some of things, some of the strands that we will see in the election in 2024. Could I ask you for a quick comment? Um, where is the Congress in, in all of this? Is it still a uh, formidable force in, um, in the national scene or has it been, um, has it, is it continuing to decline or? Well, in, in terms of, in terms of, um, the two ways to look at it, in terms of the state elections I just mentioned, the 
the Congress is is a major player in Karnataka. So um, we can't write the the there there are there are strong chances of the Congress actually winning in Karnataka in the next elections with allies, not 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 uh, not by itself. Um, it's not a player. It's not a major play in Telangana, but it is a major play in two other states at least that will come up for elections in Madhya Pradesh, which is actually the second largest state in India, which is also going to come up for elections in 2023. Um, and I guess the Madhya Pradesh elections may be important for um, for for the Congress if if they can actually win. I'm not, I'm not saying they will, but. Um, it's a moral, uh, moral boosting issue and an optics issue. So, I they, they are a play in in some of these state elections. At the national level, coming up to twenty twenty four, the Congress has to put in a lot of work in establishing itself as a real challenger. At the moment, it is seen as a as a party that is able to be part of a broader coalition. But its ability to actually establish itself as a main challenger has been um, has it's not done itself any favors in the last year. Thank you, thank you so much for that. Uh, finally, um, what do you see as the major challenges facing the states and peoples of South Asia in the short term? In the short term, my answer will be very short: um, inflation. Yes. I I believe this is an issue that a number of governments will be grappling with um, in the short term. Um, we've spoken about Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh. I've, I've referred to to India as well, but I think this is the issue that uh, that's going to be a pressing concern um, in the coming six months. Uh, Dr. Iqbal, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Imran. Always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners for joining us as well. You're listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, please visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get updates from our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Goodbye. <laughs>